Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's We're going to be back in Genesis 35 today. Let me set this, this up for you here in Genesis 35. Jacob is now a man who's been walking with the Lord for a while. His faith is growing. His family is growing as well. He's got this sprawling family at this point. <clears throat> and in Genesis 35, God calls him, and he calls him to return to the place where he found him originally, which is Bethel, that place where he saw angels ascending and descending from heaven, where he saw the Lord and said, surely the Lord's in this place. God calls him to come back there. He wants to talk to him. At this point, Jacob's no longer alone. He's got a whole family. He calls all of his family to go with him to Bethel. There's this really curious scene at the beginning where they get rid of all their foreign gods before they go to meet with the Lord. And you're wondering where those foreign gods come from? Why did they have those there? That's a long story, but they purify themselves. They get rid of their foreign gods so they could go to be with the Lord. It's something like the teenagers having to turn in their cell phones before Camp Highland this week. Something like that. So he goes to Bethel and he encounters God again there. And this is what God says to him. God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel, which means struggles with God. That's from Genesis 28, if you want to go back and look at that. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, increase in number. And a nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants, he said. We had an elder retreat a couple weeks ago, got all of our elders together out at Camp Highland, actually. Had a big bonfire, sat around telling stories, and then we threw axes together. Your your shepherds got together to throw axes. I'll tell you, this is the kind of thing that keeps preachers up at night. Elders with axes. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've had that nightmare. Larry Houck made me take this picture of him. Let's see if we got that picture on the screen. Larry Houck wanted you all to see this. Made me take that picture and send it to Miss Mary. And I was proud of Larry. It was fun. And then after we threw axes together, we came inside and our elders, one by one, shared their stories. Stories of how they came to faith, the stories of those who had mentored them and discipled them into faith. Terrific stories. In addition to that, they all eventually got to this point where the story kind of turned from them and their own development to the growth of their families and watching their kids and then grandchildren develop grow their own faith. <clears throat> and there was this, this, this kind of tone of just burden they felt for their kids and grandkids and the faith that they're growing. And specifically this burden they feel because they know that their, their own children are growing up in a world that is fractured and divided and filled with conflict and idolatry and all kinds of problems. And holding on to your faith in a world like that, those guys will tell you, is, is a challenge. And so they feel this burden for, 
for them and for the world they're growing up in. And I'll tell you, that is not unlike the burden that I think most dads feel for their kids and grandkids. I, I don't know if, if that's something that grows as you grow older, but I know that certainly older dads and granddads feel a worry, an anxiety about the future of this world and the generations that are coming behind them, how they'll experience that world. I know. I mean, if you have any doubts about that, go to Perkins Cafe any morning of the week. And there at Perkins Cafe are going to be two to three groups of old men sipping on black coffee and worrying about the world. And they just get together to just worry it out. And I don't know if old moms do that, but I know old dads do that. But there was a very different tone at that elders retreat than there was at Perkins Cafe. The many times I've been there overhearing those guys because at Perkins, there's not much hope. It's mostly despair, mostly worry. And while our elders have a deep burden and concern for the next generation, there are elders, your shepherds were just filled with hope as they talked about them, talked about the world that they're living in and what's possible in that world. What's the difference? I'll, t- I'll tell you, one of my favorite books is by a guy named Wendell Berry. It's called Jaber Crow. Jaber Crow is about this barber who lives in this small town of Kentucky. He's got some great one-liners in the book. This is one of them. He says, some of the best things I've ever thought of, I thought of during bad sermons. Which that's my least favorite quote in the whole book. Fortunately, none of you have ever thought of anything good during a sermon here because they're all so good. Okay. You could have applauded for that. Uh, So... But this is, this is actually one of my favorite lines in the book. He says this, telling a story is like reaching into a granary of wheat and drawing out a handful. There's always more to tell than can be told. Telling a story is like reaching into a granary of wheat and drawing out a handful. There's always more to tell than can be told. And I think maybe that's the difference between our elders and shepherds as they reflect on the state of our world and the old timer at Perkins is that there's a, there's a part of that story or, or a more full picture of that story that those guys believe. And that part's not always getting told over here. So come with me here to the Jacob. Come back to this promise that God makes to Jacob. We're going to try to flesh this out. God promises Jacob this. One of the most important promises in all of Scripture, he says this to him. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. Let's break this down. Leave it up on the screen for a second. What's a nation? That's pretty clear to us. You know, a nation is a standard word that's used even biblically to apply to a group of people who have the common culture, common ethnicity, people who are divided by really clear boundary lines that keep them separated from other nations. So sometimes the same word in the Bible is translated tribe, a tribe, a group that's bound together by stuff that they have in common. Uh, There's this book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger, a great book, maybe you've read it. What he talks about in the book is the way that all of us are just designed, it seems. We're just by instinct drawn to people who are a lot like us. And then we define ourselves by the group of people that we're in. And so that means we define ourselves by what we have in common with our group of people and what is different about us than everybody else elsewhere, okay? 
So we define ourselves along these tribal lines, who's in and who's out. In the book, he talks about soldiers coming home from war. And that the, like one of the causes of PTSD is that they lose their sense of tribe. They're no longer with their platoon or their company anymore. And suddenly they're around all these people who haven't been through what they've been through, haven't experienced everything that they have, and they feel out of place with those people. It's like we're drawn to people who are like us, and when you're removed from that, it's really difficult. Okay, so what that means is that we tend to define ourselves along our national lines or our tribal lines. Who's like me? Who's not like me? So we know what a nation is or a tribe. We know that part of the promise. Here's the part we don't know. A community of nations. God promises Jacob a community of nations will come from him. What in the world is that? That's something that it's actually pretty hard for us to conceive of. I think the closest maybe we get when we, when we originally think of it is what? What do you think of? The United Nations or the EU or NATO or something like that. Which are these kind of problematic unions of different nations with competing interests and different desires and different kinds of people that are kind of like barely held together. That's kind of how it works. That's in some ways our best picture of what a community of nations is. It's kind of hard for us to think of. And yet God promises Jacob that he is going to pour out a power onto Jacob's family, his descendants, that is strong enough to unite people who by nature are drawn apart from one another. A power that is going to unite people across those lines that divide us. All right, so come with me to today. You know, the American experiment, as it's been called, proves that this promise is pretty hard to sustain. A community of nations. And we pride ourselves in America on being a melting pot. And uh, where all these different kind of nations and ethnicities and cultures come together and we all just live in perfect harmony, united by our freedom. And what's the reality? It's pretty fragile union, isn't it? There's recent divisions along every single possible line you can think of in the last few years have shown. It's a fragile thing, a community of nations. You know, today's a really special day. Today's the Juneteenth holiday. Juneteenth, of course, the recognition of the final end of slavery in America long after the Emancipation Proclamation. This is such an important day for us to recognize and celebrate as Americans uh, because it recognizes July 4th is not our only Independence Day. But even the thing that we believe is the thing that we all share here, we all have in common, freedom. The reality is, for us, freedom is different. Even our histories with that beautiful thing, freedom, are different. It's important to recognize that difference. And I'm going to talk to my boys about this holiday this afternoon. It's one of my responsibilities as as a dad is to make sure they understand the full picture of the world. But recognize, even in the moment, even when we're celebrating our holidays, our holidays point out what? We're different. We don't have everything in common. And the things that we preach and declare and sing that unite us are actually paper thin. Really thin. Let's come back with me here to Jacob. 
Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. You've heard that language before. And the 12 tribes of Israel don't just love each other and get along. The first thing they do, these 12 brothers, is they sell their brother into slavery. So it's not a great start for this community of tribes idea, community of nations. And you follow these tribes as they grow and develop, and you come into this period we call the Judges period. You can read about that in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And that's a period that is just defined by basically anarchy, moral bankruptcy, idolatry, and terrible division among the groups of people that are supposed to be God's people. And this is what we read in Judges. This line keeps getting repeated over and over again. It's defining what the problem is, why the world that they're living in is so fractured, much like ours. And this is what it says. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, he's, he's identifying the problem, the thing that makes it so hard for a community of nations to exist is us. And our tendency to do what we want, to elevate ourselves, and our problem that we're not bound by a common and so maybe you hear that description, a world where everybody does what they want and they don't have the king or a king in common. And that world is divided, fractured, and conflict. You may hear that description and what do you think of? This world. Right? And if you think about that long enough, like the old timer at Perkins, you're filled with hopelessness. What's the future for that kind of world? It doesn't feel bright. Remember what Jaber Crow says, not about bad sermons, but about telling stories. He says, telling a story is like reaching into a granary of wheat and pulling out your hand. There's always more to tell than can be told. What's the part of that story of the world that so often is being told that's being left out? Let me give you an example. 160 years ago, almost to the day, June 8th, 1862, if you'd have picked up any newspaper in America on that day, what would the headlines have been about? 1862, Civil War. In fact, I did some Googling to find newspaper clippings from that time period, and every single one is about the division of our country, the Civil War, and the updates on the fighting across the country connected to that conflict. So if you've been reading that newspaper on June 8th, 1860, you would have been, 1862, what would you have been filled with? hopelessness. And yet, on that very same day, on the other side of the world, in Polynesia, this little group of islands we call Tonga, on that day, 5,000 Tongans came together for the first time in their history across tribal lines that had previously been at war with one another for generations, where they had been cannibals, 5,000 of them laid down their spears on that day, came together in one meeting, and sang together the hymn that the missionaries had taught them. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. And that, nat that nation to this day has a large... Christian community in it, scattering of churches all over that island. Now, if you had been in America that day reading 
your newspaper about the Civil War, you would have been filled with absolute hopelessness. If you had been in Tonga that day, what would have filled your heart? Great hope. The impossible had just taken place. 5,000 people who used to be at war with one another, cannibals, had laid down their swords, come together holding hands, singing that Jesus is King. You would have been filled with the greatest of hope. So Jacob gets this promise that a power is going to be poured out on his family that will stretch across those tribal national lines, uniting people under a common what? A king. And that when all those people unite under that king, right, that a power will be unleashed in the world unlike anything else. And I want to tell you today, I want to say this really clearly, that nothing on earth, has come as close to accomplishing a community of nations as the church. There is no other power, no other governmental structure, no other body in existence that transcends and reaches beyond and across national lines that even comes close to what has happened in the body of Christ. Let me read this to you. Goring Conwell Seminary put this out a few years ago. It's called The World in 100 Christians. Do you know there are 2.5 billion Christians in the world? But they shrink that number down to 100 so that you can conceive of it and imagine it. And so this is what they say. If 100 Christians represented all of global Christianity, 67 would live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or Oceania, while 33 would live in Europe or North America. Most would be found in urban areas, 65, as opposed to rural, 35. Linguistically, 16 would speak Spanish as their mother tongue, 10 English, 8 Portuguese, 5 Russian, and 3 Mandarin Chinese. Most, 64, would, have, <clears throat> would be between the ages of 15 to 64, while 26 would be under 15. 11 Christians would be illiterate. 35 would have no access to secondary education. Roughly half of Christians would have no access to the internet. 14 would have no access to safe water and five would have malaria. Most Christians would live in countries with moderate to high corruption. 35 would live in countries with low development. A typical Christian today is a non-white woman living in the global South with lower than average levels of society safety and proper health care, and that represents a vastly different Christian than 100 years ago. So I read that, and maybe what sticks out to you, first of all, is the desperate need that the church has to share its resources to bless those in other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And this church has done that in beautiful ways. I'm thinking most recently about our efforts in Ukraine. We've raised $100,000 to bless those in that war-torn country. So that's part of what you hear. But the, re the main reason I hear that is because I want you to recognize that Christians, the body of Christ around the world, have about every single possible difference from one another. We basically have nothing in common, the 2.5 billion of us who are Christians. We basically have nothing in common around the world except one thing, Jesus Christ, our King. And I'm telling you, there is no other power on earth that has accomplished for this world what Jesus has in his body. There is no other thing that comes close to being the community of nations that God promised except the church and what binds us together, our king, our king.
And so look at this. I got a, I got a question from a, uh, a young mom studying with this mom and dad. And she asked me how to, re- how to read the Bible. She hadn't been exposed much to the Bible. And I actually think this promise is the place to start. Okay, let me back up a little bit. Before God makes this promise to Jacob, he makes this promise to his grandfather Abraham. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the beginning of a vision of a power that's going to reach around the whole world. Okay, then he repeats that promise to Jacob. He says this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. And then he adds on top of that promise to Jacob this line, a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. And from Jacob promises his, to his son Judah that there will be a king who sits on the throne forever from his family line. And he says this about him, the obedience of the nations, plural, shall be his. And so I told that woman who's trying to learn how to read the Bible is that you have to read the Bible through this lens that God has promised from the beginning a power that would reach around the world and bless all people, uniting them under a common king. That has been the hope of God's people since age immemorial. Like So all the way back, that has been what God's people have been hoping for and what we believe Jesus fulfills. We believe Jesus is the king who is bringing together the whole world. We see this in Ephesians 2, where God brings together Jew and Gentile for the first time in history, brings them in together into one thing, what do we call it? The church. And that was the beginning of this power that reaches across national lines because we are united by the most important thing, our king. I'll tell you, if you think about the state of the world enough, you will be filled with despair. But that's only part of the story. And the part of the story that it is incumbent upon us to tell for our own sakes and for the sake of the next generation is that God is keeping his greatest promises in the form of Jesus Christ and in his church. And that there is no power on earth that comes close to accomplishing what the body of Christ has around the world, uniting people who have everything different from one another, but have one thing in common, and that's Jesus their King. I want to read this quote here at the end. Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, and he was writing to a friend of his who had this habit of worrying and just being filled with despair about the movement. And it was a hard time in the movement. It was pretty violent and hostile. It was a difficult time, but he wrote to his friend, he said this, he said, Philip, I pray for you very earnestly, and I am deeply pained that you keep sucking up cares like a leech and thus rendering my prayers vain. What he basically means is he worries a lot. Christ knows whether it comes from stupidity or the Spirit, but I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause. Indeed, I am more hopeful than I expected to be, because God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold our cause if it's falling, or to raise it up again when it has fallen or to move it forward when we're standing. If we are not worthy instruments to accomplish that purpose, He will find others. If we are not strengthened by His promises, where in all the world are the people to whom those promises apply? But more on this another time. After all, my writing this is like pouring water into the sea. I mean, we are in the hands 
of a king whose power is so much greater than any other in the world. And who is, by his power and grace, uniting people who have nothing in common except him. That's why when we're baptized, like Connor was a second ago, like our young people will be this week, we're baptized into the confession. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King? That's what we have in common. And that's all it takes. That common bond. I'll leave you with this. Peter, sorry, Jesus tells Peter, you're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. Jesus is building this thing around the world. And then he tells Peter, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, his church. And I used to think that that meant that the church was on the defensive and that nothing Satan threw at us would ever get to us. It wouldn't stop us. But gates are not a weapon. Gates are a defense. What he's actually saying is that the body of Christ, the church that Jesus is building, is storming the gates of hell, and hell won't be able to stop it, is what he's saying. And when you think about that, when you see the actual picture of what the body of Christ is doing around the world, you are not filled with dread or despair. You are left with nothing but to rejoice, like Paul says. To rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice because he is beyond compare. And what he's doing in the body of Christ is unparalleled. That's why we give ourselves to him. That's why. And I want every young person that's growing up here to know that. This is happening nowhere else except in the church. Let me pray over you. God, I thank you for your body that's here in this place, your body that stretches around the world of which we are a part, a body united by your Son, our King, Jesus. And so, God, we rejoice. We glorify you, and we are filled with hope. We pray in his name, the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.